Welcome to the business of open source. Every week, we explore different aspects of the relationship between money and open source software, talking with industry experts about monetizing open source projects, building a company around an open source or several open source projects, and the business value that open source provides. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the business of open source. I'm Emily O'Meara, your host. And uh, I am recording live at Open Source Summit in Austin with Jeff Shapiro, who is the License Scanning Manager for the Linux Foundation. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me. We are, always start with introductions, and uh, I actually definitely want to hear more about what it is you actually do. So what does license scanning mean, and, and why does the Linux Foundation need course, someone to do that? Of course. So I want to preface by saying I'm an engineer. I'm not an attorney even though license scanning is an activity that does involve looking at open source licenses, which is a common activity done by attorneys. So I have a background in software engineering and I've been doing license scanning and compliance for a long time now, over 10 years. So at the Linux Foundation, what we want to do is, you know, as, as you may, may be aware, Linux Foundation hosts many hundreds of open source projects. A lot of people are familiar, of, of course, the Linux kernel and big projects like Kubernetes. But we, we host hundreds of projects. And of course, each of those projects has a project license, an open source license that applies to the project overall. And as you may expect, most projects have many, many contributors who are writing their own code and or modifying code and contributing it to those projects. When we provide a project to the public, we want to be sure that, that all the code that goes into that project is under the license, under the project license that we say it is, that, that we publish that project under. And, you know, because engineers are people and Sometimes they aren't aware. Nobody does this maliciously, but because people aren't aware, sometimes they may inadvertently contribute code that's under a different license, sometimes a license that's not compatible with the project license. So, so we want to be sure that all those licenses are compatible. How often do you find the non-compliant licenses? More often than you might expect. Not all the time. Certainly the more mature projects that have been scanned multiple times, that happens less often. Newer projects, projects that haven't been scanned before, it's actually pretty common. You know, there's so much code that goes into a project. It's actually pretty common that we find open source licenses that apply to code that are in those projects that we don't expect or that, that probably shouldn't be there. So I imagine that there's legal risk or, you know, business risk from a lot of different angles here, like a lot of different stakeholders. So let me start with the perspective of the maintainer of an open source project. Why do you need to understand licenses, both the license you're publishing you know, your, your project on and also what any contributed code that's, that's coming in is licensed under? Like, why is this important? What risk do you run if you, you know, either you license your project in a way that could make some future decision impossible or that you have some code that's not compliant? So the risk depends on how you are using the code, how the end user is using the code downstream. And the thing is, we want our projects to be available and usable to to anybody. It might be an individual, it might be a company or a commercial enterprise, it might be you know, somebody at, a, at an academic institution, but it could be anybody. And we can't say in advance what the risk will be, except 
what we do know is the thing about open source licenses, they do have obligations, they do have requirements, and and they do have you know legal ramifications to them. And those apply regardless of whether you understand them or whether you know about them or not. So a common example of risk would be if you are a commercial enterprise and you are developing proprietary code and you want to use open source, some open source project as part of that product. That's that's a very common use case. Most commercial products these days incorporate some type of open source as part of the code base. You need to know that the license that applies to that open source is compatible mixing it with proprietary code. If you have a different use case and you are developing code under a copyleft license, those carry different you know, risks and obligations. You want to be sure that the code that you're mixing is compatible with those licenses. In the case of developing proprietary code, the risk that you take if you don't know what licenses are in the open source that you are using is that it could downstream, it could change the license of your own code. So if you mix copyleft open source with proprietary code in a specific way, the end result could be that that copyleft license then applies to the proprietary code and essentially relicenses that code based on the terms of the copyleft license. And if that's your goal, that's great. But if it's not your goal, if you're a commercial enterprise and it's not your goal to relicense your code as open source, then it's not so great. And that is certainly one of the risks that's involved if you're mixing code under different licenses. So we can't say in advance who's going to use our code and how they're going to combine it or create derivative works. But we want people to be able to understand what the license is and feel confident that they're getting essentially what's advertised or they're, they're, they're getting what they expect. So when they go to GitHub and they download code or clone a repo, that is a Linux Foundation hosted project. We want them to be able to look at that project license and you know look at the documentation for that project and feel confident that they're getting what what's stated. It totally makes sense. I mean, essentially, when you have a project that's hosted by the Linux Foundation, what you're saying is like this has a stamp of approval. We're putting our authority behind this project and saying that it's you know it's not like actually going to run malware or whatever it is. And one of those is like, it's hopefully not going to land you in like legal hot water. Ultimately, we, you know, we can't provide a warranty. We can't, we can't guarantee, we can't make any promise, but we at least want users to know that we've done some amount of due diligence and that we expect that this is what's there. If you are an open source startup, which is to say you're, you know, you want to be Red Hat in the future or maybe not Red or HashiCorp or something like that. And you have an open source project that's that's really core to your company's identity and also closely related to whatever your commercial product is. What are some license issues that you have to be particularly aware of? So it really depends on what your goal is for that open source project. There are some companies that release a product or a project under a dual license with an open source license and a commercial license. So there are essentially two use cases. One would be downstream, you know, you, you're a commercial entity and you want to use this code base and mix it with other proprietary code or commercial product. And maybe you would 
you know, purchase a commercial license. Um, another use case would be that you want to try out the project or, or examine it or do some testing, um, in which case you might use it under the open source license. It really depends on what the, what the use case is for the user downstream. But it's, it's, it's not unusual for a startup to, or any company to, to release a product under more than one license. Another use case might be that they want to make the code base itself open source and they want to provide added value, whether it be extra projects that work well with it. So you have a base level of functionality that's essentially open source and available for no charge. And maybe you have add-ons or extensions that then they charge for, or maybe you have some type of service or hosting. So it really, it, it depends a lot on what the business model is. What I typically see for a lot of companies is they provide some type of added value, a service or, or some kind of added layer of functionality on top, which is often worth paying for to, to get that extra, extra functionality or service. But the base layer is free. And what that does is it creates a community. It creates interest. More people will use that base functionality or use that, that project to begin with. And it gets it out there, it gets it, makes it available, makes the, the sort of the cost of entry a lot lower so that people can start using something and see what it's all about. And what do you see engineers or, you know, people who are creating open source projects often get wrong about their, their licenses? What I see people get wrong typically is either not being clear about what license their code is under and or not knowing that if they're reusing some other code, that if they don't know what the license is, that it may not be open source or it may be under a license that's not compatible. So I would say, I wouldn't say getting it wrong. I would say just not being aware enough about how licenses may interact or if it doesn't have a license that it may not even be open source. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like part of the issue or part of the complication is that, you know, we talk about open source, but the reality is there's like lots of different flavors of open source and sometimes you can't mix them and people aren't always aware. You know, if you say like, oh, this is, this code is open source. Well, you actually have to dig a lot deeper in order to figure out, well, does that mean that I can use it for my particular project given what my goals are? So that's definitely true. And some people make the mistake of thinking, well, I've got the source code for something, so it must be open source. Again, you know, there are instances where commercial code, or I should say proprietary code, is actually available somewhere, but it actually isn't open source. So a company may publish an SDK and say, well, you, if you, know, if you, want, you can look at this, but if you want to use it, you need to purchase a commercial license. There are examples like that. The, uh, the more common one is that people just grab source code off of some, you know, random website and they say, well, I, the, the code is here, it's, it's posted, therefore it must be open source. But the person who posted it doesn't, un, doesn't realize that they actually have to declare that this is under a specific open source license. And if they don't, then technically it's not open source. So I just see people, you know, don't understand. and. It's common just because, you know, most people don't think about licenses on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Because it's, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, I just want to write code. 
you know, I just want to use somebody else's code. Um, it's just one of those things that it's a, it, it's necessary. It, it may not be the most glamorous or exciting thing to think about licenses, but it's definitely necessary. Yeah. The example you bring up sounds sort of like the software equivalent of like code that fell off the back of the truck. I mean, it's actually a a really valid point because if you don't know where code comes from, you know, should you trust it? (laughs) Right. There's probably lots of other reasons you shouldn't trust the code that you don't know where it comes from. At Linux Foundation, we have something called a DCO, a developer certificate of origin for people who contribute code. And the main purpose is so the developer or contributor is basically certifying that either they wrote this code themselves or that they know where it comes from and that they have uh, a, a right to contribute that code so that you aren't you know, contributing somebody else's code that they don't have the right to contribute. So that that pedigree, if you will, is, is important to say, you know, yes, I wrote this code myself or I have a right to, to contribute this to the, to the project. So how do you educate yourself uh, about licenses? You know, not only does not everyone have the resources to hire an attorney, but quite frankly, I, I know that open source lawyers are are not particularly common. There's not that many of them. What do you do, uh, you know, if you can't or don't want to hire an attorney? It's not that hard to understand the basics of how open source licenses work to get enough information so that you can be cautious and you can be, essentially you could do the right thing. I've actually trained hundreds of engineers in in the basics of open source licenses over a number of years. And what I find is that most software engineers and developers are actually happy to know how do these licenses work and what do they mean. Yeah, it's, again, it's not the most exciting part of their job, but they actually are really, really grateful to get that information so they understand it. There, there are actually a number of organizations out there, including the Linux Foundation, that provide information about open source licenses. Uh, Linux Foundation actually has, in our training education area, we actually have a number of, of, of courses that are available for free. And one of those is the basics of open source licensing for developers. So that's, that's available online on the Linux Foundation training website. Anybody can access that and get a good basic instruction in open source licenses. There's the OSI, the Open Source Initiative, that publishes information about licenses. Uh, The Free Software Foundation publishes a lot of information. Uh, The Apache Foundation has a great reference in FAQ about the Apache licenses as well as other open source licenses. Um, there are a lot of resources out there. So if somebody really you know wants to learn about open source licenses, there's definitely information out there. Linux Foundation has a standard called SPDX, which is the Software Package Data Exchange that is more than just about licenses. It's about building an SBOM, a software bill of materials, so you know the pedigree of your code, which is important for not only license information, but also for things like you know tracking down security vulnerabilities. The uh, SPDX website also has a lot of great license information. So there are resources out there. You just need to do a little bit of searching and and there's definitely good information to find. When do you need to consult an expert? And I'm talking, you know, hopefully you don't decide you need to consult an expert because you got like, you know, a certified letter, but, you know, proactively, like a, a situation where you need to consult, you know, either an attorney or, or someone who's an expert in licenses. 
it's, you know, it's difficult to say exactly, but in general, if you have questions about how licenses interact that you, you know, and, and you don't understand a license or, or mixing specific licenses, if you have concerns about patents, things like that, it's certainly worth it to, to talk to legal counsel in that regard. Um, if you're a commercial entity and you're actually, you know, selling something selling a product or selling software, then of course it makes sense to have legal, you know, legal counsel that you can consult to make sure, you know, that you aren't going to run into any issues. You know, if you are using code for your own purposes, you know, like your own personal project, there's usually less risk involved just because, you know, you're, you're probably not distributing stuff or it's not being used by other people. A lot of the terms and obligations and risks that come with using code come into play when you are redistributing code or creating derivative works. By the way, distribution doesn't mean you're selling it for money. doesn't mean there's a monetary cost. Distribution just means that you are redistributing or publishing that code, whether you're charging for it or not. But certainly if you are redistributing code and the wider audience that you have, the more visibility you have, that would entail more risk. And then you probably want to um, you know, have uh, an expert available should you have any, any questions about licenses. And how did you get into the, the license side as an engineer? Well, I am, as, like a lot of engineers in Silicon Valley, um, I hopped around between a number of different companies and different jobs. I actually started my open source license journey when I happened to get a job working for a little company called Black Duck Software. <laughs> which is, you know, one of the vendors of open source license and compliance tools. Um, I knew very little about open source licenses or open source even in general. That was some years ago. That's uh, really where I, I started. I was actually curious if you could talk a little bit more about dual licenses. Like, what does that mean? Um, it doesn't, I have to say, intuitively make sense that you could release something under two licenses at the same time? So that's a great question. Um, I see a lot of confusion about dual licenses. In most cases, what dual licensing means is that the end user has a choice. So um, I actually gave this example in my presentation yesterday of two different projects that are released under dual licenses. One is Perl. Perl is released under GPL or artistic license. And the key is that it's not and, it's not under both licenses at the same time. Perl is released under GPL or artistic license, which means that if you use the Perl code base, then you have a choice of, of using the code under one license or the other license. And it, it is your choice. Another common example is jQuery in the past that they've actually changed jQuery so that it's just the, the current versions are only under a single license. But in the past, jQuery was released under a dual license, uh, GPL or MIT. So if you use jQuery, you have a choice of using it under either of those licenses, depending on your use case and you know what your goal is. Another example that I gave in my talk yesterday is the Qt toolkit. Um, that's released under a dual license. In this case, it's a GPL or commercial license. And so in that use case, if you purchase a commercial license from the maker of Qt, you get to use it under that commercial license. 
And then the open source licensing terms don't apply. If you don't purchase that commercial license, then you're, you are by default using it under the GPL license. And so that's you know, one example of different use cases, whether, whether it makes sense for you to use it under the open source license or if it makes sense for you to use it under the commercial license and then you would purchase that. You touched on something that I think is important to address, which is uh, about changing licenses. How hard is it to change licenses on a project? Well, it depends on who's doing the changing. <laughs> if you own the copyright to the project or if you own the copyright to the code, if you're the author, whether you're an individual or an uh, organization or a corporation, you can change that license anytime you want. If you've already released a version under a specific license and it's out there, you know, available to the public, then people can use it under that license that it was published under. And then you can release a later version under a different license. You can't retroactively change the license for something that you've already released, but you, you can go and, and change the license in a, in a new version. If you don't own the rights to the code, or I, I guess a good example would be in, in an open source project where there is a maintainer or a group of maintainers and there are many, many contributors, then all of those contributors generally still own the copyright for the code that they contributed, but they are granting rights to the maintainers or the essentially the owner of the project or the host of the project to release that overall project under the license that, that they choose, the project license. It depends on how that project is set up. In the case of, say, uh, one, one common way for uh, a project host or maintainer to um, accept contributions is under something called a, a CLA, a Contributor License Agreement. Typically, the author of a contribution would still have the copyright to that contribution, but they are granting rights to the maintainer or host to release that code under their project license or the license they choose. So it's not that difficult if the maintainer or host wants to release or change the license if they have the rights to do so or depending on what the license is. But if you don't have a license or essentially the rights to the code, you can't just automatically take somebody else's code and relicense it. The permissive licenses, like the common ones are, say, BSD, MIT, Apache licenses, you are granted the right to release derivative or combined works under a different license. So you can't just take that code and relicense because you don't, you don't have the copyright to it. But if you combine it or make a derivative work, you can then relicense it if the license gives you that right or permission then you can relicense it under a different license when you're combining it with your own code. I know that I've heard controversies about using open source for, um, for lack of a better word, purposes that not everyone agrees with. Some people might call them evil. Of course, you know, let's also face it that the definition of evil is subjective. So one person's evil may not be the, the next person's. But can you, in fact, use a license to disallow certain uses of your project that, that you might not agree with? So the difficulty there is, is there, so I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is, can you, is there something in a license that is enforceable or 
that you can actually define what what it really means. I am familiar with a license that says you can use this code for good, but not for evil. And uh, the, the lawyers that I've talk to they they just kind of roll their eyes or pull their hair out when they <laughs> when they see that license and and often they just say you know what we're not going to take a chance we just don't want to use code that's under that license or under a license with a term like with with a clause or terms like that it may or may not be enforceable but, but it's certainly not something that's easy to say you know it's tangible or or who can define? I mean, sure, it, it would be wonderful if we could all say, you know, this is good and this isn't good, but everybody, you know, might have a different interpretation of that. So really it comes down to interpretation. And can you interpret that in a deterministic way, in a way that's, you know, that is clear and is not ambiguous? There are licenses. So you don't need to be an attorney to write a license. Anybody can write a license. There's the beerware license, if you haven't heard of that. Somebody, I don't remember the the person's name off the top of my head, but somebody created a license that said, you can use this code however you want. If you like it and it's useful and you ever meet me somewhere, you can buy me and you you want to say thank you, you can buy me a beer. (laughs) So that's the beerware license. Anybody can write a license and, and release their code under that license. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, doesn't mean it's a good idea. So I, I would say use common sense. And, you know, if you believe that this, this license makes sense, then great. If you have doubts, then don't use it. Or if you have a case where there is potential risks, then, you know, consult your legal counsel, find out if it's a good idea or not. <laughs> I love it. Well, anyone who uh, listens to this podcast and enjoys it, they can buy me a beer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, well, Go ahead and wrap up. But before we do, you've already given listeners some resources to, to learn more, but how can they follow you or connect with you? I am available on LinkedIn. I, I don't maintain a huge social media presence, but certainly you know, people can, can find me on LinkedIn or reach out to me through the Linux Foundation. Fabulous. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Business of Open Source. If you'd like to learn more about positioning, messaging, and go-to-market for open source and cloud-native startups, head over to my blog, positioningopensource.com. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Emily O'Meara, and you can feel free to reach out on Twitter or on my website and blog with questions or comments. If you enjoyed this episode, also please share and help more people discover this podcast. Thank you, and we hope to have you next week.